Well, our text this morning comes from the book of Jude. The book of Jude, today we're going to uh, focus on verses 17 through 23. I'll read them before we begin. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Let's pray once more. Father God, Lord, we are about to embark on a task that man left in his own mind cannot do. And to this world, it is foolishness, God. The foolishness of preaching. But Lord, how we desperately need to hear from your word, the very true word, the perfect word of God this morning. Go before us, dear Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I want to open up this morning. I think it always gets our attention when we read from a text that tells us about the last times. That word seems to really highlight. And we're like, well, hmm, the end. I want to read from you uh, from a book to start of a time where this this man experienced this horrific event. Well, now I have to preface this by this event took place on April 6, 1906, in the city of San Francisco, known as the Great Earthquake. Here's what he writes. We were awakened by the circumstance that the bed in which we lay was pushed clear across the room to the opposite wall. The same thing happened in the room where our children lay asleep. We got up, but it was impossible for us to stand on our feet. On hands and feet, we were several times thrown back and forth on the floor from one wall to the other. We got down to the yard in the back of the house, and just at that moment, there was another violent quake, which was followed by an uncanny rumbling underground. The house swayed as if it stood on a rolling seat. The houses in our district were built wall to wall, so that if one house stood, the others would stand, and where one house fell, the whole block would fall. Well, this man documents as he makes his way out, outside of his house. He has is, he is seen not only the, the destruction of the earthquake, buildings collapsing, houses no more, but he has seen fires everywhere. And this is what he recounts as he's visibly seen his city that he's lived in 
burned to the ground. We suffered greatly from the heat and smoke. The fire belt in the part of the city was estimated about 60 blocks in length. And during the last part of the fire, it was only four blocks from us. In order to stop the fire from moving forward, the buildings were blown up by dynamite. And these explosions threw huge sticks of wood like burning torches down in our vicinity. And then when the fire ignited several such buildings where there were explosives stored, other explosions occurred. All this together with the frequent shakings of lesser quakes had a very uncanny influence on many people. This is what he observed as, as he's walking now throughout the city and, and in these days. He saw quite, he said, quite a number fainted. Many lost their minds. He witnessed people committing suicide. As he roams through the street, he saw packs of dogs running at large. People who were trying to get off the island by the thousands to jump on that San Francisco ferry over into the Bay of Oakland. There was massive rushes, massive storms of people, 1,000 or more. But the military had control of the city. and They didn't want chaos, so they held the crowds back with fixed bayonets. He said this, long hospital lines, so many dead human corpses, people robbing the dead of their jewelry. Well, how was this all being reported by the, the local newspaper? He said this, the number of dead and wounded was never ascertained and possibly the figures were suppressed in order not to damage the future of the city and scare people from coming to San Francisco. For this reason, the newspaper screamed mostly about the fire and less about the earthquake. And then finally, he recalls one night as he's walking out there and smoke billowing up. It's, it's a red night sky, sun barely visible, moon barely visible, he sees a six-year-old girl praying, asking God to take away the sins of the city. This is what he said. What we experience during that time on the hill will never be forgotten. It reminded us of the day of judgment. You know, perhaps in some way we can maybe resonate with this man who recounts this. I have no doubt in my mind as he is witnessing this travesty being played out before him that he thought the end had come. And maybe like many of us here in this room, we may have had similar feelings, maybe perhaps even more recently, what has occurred within the past three years at the thought of last times is often coming to mind. Well, this is one thing we have to know for sure, and this deals greatly with this morning's text, is we are certainly in the last times, right? And if I, understanding the Bible correctly, when has the last times began? Well, that, of course, started with the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. You read the book of Acts to see that. We are in the last times. And my goal for this text this morning, for all of us, right, Jude lays out 
three specific areas that I see for us of how we can live well in the last times. So if we examine the text before us, number one, it says here, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers. So my first point, Jude reminds us that in the last times we have to first remember the warnings. Number one, remember the warnings. Remember the warnings of who? Well, they were taught to us by the apostles speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what were those, what were those warnings? I believe in this text, under remembering those warnings, there's five of them. There's five of them. One, he talks about scoffers. Scoffers. Well, what is a scoffer? Well, very similar to Jude is the book of Second Peter. Second Peter 3, 3 Right? It says this, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with their scoffing. Well, what will they be scoffing about? Well, verse 4, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? Where is the promise of his coming? In the last times, as Christians, faithful Christians, are living life, we long for the, the second great event in human history. Right? The second coming of Christ. Whereas we read in the Old Testament, everybody was awaiting the coming of Christ, his first coming. We now, the church age, awaits his second coming. Well, what, what, do we, what will the people be doing as they scoff and, and mock the people of God? Well, Christ said this in Luke 17, just as in the, in the days of Noah, this is what they were doing. They were eating and drinking and marrying. Right? The scoffers will basically mock us, but they will go on with life as normal. Eating, drinking, marrying. They will say, for tomorrow we die. That's very scriptural. I will also say that they will attempt to frustrate the plans of the righteous. Read the book of Ezra. When the group wanted to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, the local governing authorities tried to frustrate them. Read the book of Nehemiah. As Nehemiah was called to go back to Jerusalem to build the wall, Sanballat and, and, and those who opposed the rebuilding wanted to frustrate them. So I would say along with the scoffing came frustration from the people. Well, why is this happening well, with the scoffers, what are they doing? They are following, next, right here verse, in verse 18, they are following their own ungodly passions. They don't seem to care because they're indulged in, in self, the glory of self. In fact, the book of Jude says much about those who live in this ungodly way. If we just follow quickly through this book, verse 4 says this about the ungodly. They pervert the grace of our Lord into sensuality. This great perversion. Everything is, is just corrupt in their manner of the, the, the sexual passions that play out. It's a great perversion. They engage in gross immorality, openly flaunting their sin. Verse 8 of Jude says, 
They defile the, the, the flesh. They reject authority. They blaspheme the glorious ones. Verse 16, they are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters. Well, you know what? Secondly, what is going to happen? We have scoffing, many living ungodly lives. But next it says here, it is these who cause division. Well, we might ask ourselves, how in the world are they going to cause division? Well, if you know the theme of Jude, it speaks heavily of the apostate, of the false teachers. Now, we know that the ungodly will, will live as the ungodly does. But something has happened in these times, what Jude is warning us about, at the ungodly, the apostate, the false teacher will infiltrate the church. How are they going to cause divisions? They will find their way into the church. Verse 4 of Jude says, they crept in unnoticed. It won't be apparent. It won't be obvious. It further says in verse 12, they are, it describes the apostates, the ungodly, these, these false teachers as this. The hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves. Well, what, what's a, a faithful shepherd supposed to do? To feed the flock of God, to honor the word of God, to teach, to exhort, to admonish. Not so for the false teacher. They are stuffing themselves. Again, they are the ungodly. They are all about self, so they are concerned about their well-being. And, and Jude uses this illustration of, of the appearance of the false teacher. He uses these four illustrations from nature. It says here, waterless clouds, fruitless trees, wild waves, and wandering stars. Well, why does he use these illustrations? Well, four of these things all have the glimmer of hope in one way or another. As a farmer were to look out and to see a, maybe the hope of a watering cloud or a rain cloud, he would say, yes, rain is coming. Precipitation is coming for my crops. But when it's a waterless cloud, it only leads to disappointment. What about the a tree? You plant a tree, and, and you hope, a fruit tree, and you hope that it will one day bear fruit, right? And it will bear fruit. That one day, eventually, you'll get to enjoy the fruit. But when that, true, when that tree is, is fruitless, it just has the appearance of a fruit tree, but nothing for you to enjoy. Well, what about the wild waves? These waves that come rushing at us. Well, the false teacher will have the appearance of power and might. And he might appear as giving you living water. But the only thing that he is going to kick up is, it talks about here, the, the foam of, of, of these waves. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. So this water is, is coming at you, but all you're getting is the dirt and the grime of the, un, of the ocean floor in its foam. The promise of power, but you get the dirt. And then lastly, wandering stars. 
You ever look up at the sky? Ah, shooting star. You make a wish, right? But what happens to that star? It, it, it sizzles out. It fizzles out. It looks so glamorous, but then it's gone. That's a false teacher. They have this, this hope aspiring, just like a shooting star, but they're wandering. They fizzle out. The false teachers will creep into the church. And, and why? Because they're worldly people. Verse 19, verse 19, it says here, And these who cause divisions, worldly people, they live as the world does. They love what the world does. That is their satisfaction. In this life, in, in this alone, they may not have that appearance, but inwardly, they love the world. And, and why? Well, it tells us here, what are they devoid of? They are devoid of of the Spirit. They lack not the Spirit. And what, did, what did Jesus promise to every believer? What is he going to give them? The Spirit. Those who walk in this life, who claim Christ as Lord, but do not have the Spirit, they are not his. Romans 8, 9 says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Titus 1, 16, speaking of the false teachers, they profess to know God. But by their deeds, they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Because they're void, devoid of the Spirit. And they have nothing in them that is from God. I mean, I guess if we look around at our landscape, you know, you just even take America. I mean, it is firm biblical doctrine increasing. Are people, are, are you seeing more faithful churches rise up? More faithful teachers who are faithfully proclaiming the word of God. Now, I will say that those who are faithful, the remnant, remain faithful, but at least from the appearance, there seems to be many who are leading many astray. And we have to remember these warnings. We have to remember that, that these exist, scoffers, worldly pe people, false teachers, the ungodly, Jeremiah 23, 1, Woe to the shepherd who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. They'll be here. And as the Lord, the time of his arrival draws near, they will increase. Well, that's point number one. We have to remember the warnings first off. But secondly, what are we called to do? We have to ready Ourselves. We have to ready ourselves. The text gives clear indication of how we are to do that. Verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. I want to focus on 20. Building up. Well, how is any foundation built? Or how is any home built? A good home is going to be built on a solid foundation. And thus should be the church of Christ. We are, we are building each, each other up on the word of God. The foundation of Christ, as 1 Corinthians 3 puts it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. How the church builds itself up is to continue to faithfully proclaim the word of God, to teach it, to love it. And we need this. 
We need a strong foundational church. Because as we remember the warnings, we have to equip ourselves, ready ourselves, build up ourselves. Second, we pray. Right? We, we pray in the Holy Spirit. Isn't this a comfort? The third member of the Trinity. He is guiding us. The third person of the Trinity guiding us. Praying for us. And why is this so important? I think Romans 8.26 puts it best. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Right? In the last times, times will become so intense. And we see a world caving, corrupting around us. And we may not always have the words to pray, but guess what? It's a great comfort to know that the Spirit's going to intercede. We're going to be groaning. What is, what is going on? Well, the Lord does not leave us alone. He has given us the, the power of the Spirit to guide us, not only in prayer, but in understanding of His Word. Praise God to that. So I just pointed out two things that the church must do. Read your Bible and pray. And you're like, we know that. I know. I know you know that. I was, I was reading from, you know, going over Joshua again. The book of Joshua. And I, and I came across, you know, the, this wonderful, right? Joshua 1.8 starts off in such a wonderful manner. As the people are gathered, Joshua is now taken the leadership role. Moses has died. Joshua 1.8, this is what is being proclaimed. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according all that is written in it. Uphold the book of the law and meditate on it. Read your Bible. And meditate or pray. You know, as Joshua guided the people to the next step, he sent his spies where they met the prostitute Rahab. They spied out the city of Jericho. Right? Like, all right. We know what it looks like. We're ready. We're ready to take this into battle. There's one guy that's with them. His name would be Achan. All right. We're praying. We're meditating. We're going into Jericho. Lord, go, go with us. Go with us. Go with us. They spied it out. They're ready to go. They're going to cross the Jordan. The, the, the Lord's going to pave the way for them. He's going to part the waters in a miraculous way. They're going to cross the Jordan. Achan is like, we're going to pray, Lord. We're going to pray. We're going to pray. I'm going to trust your word. I'm going to trust your word. They go into Jericho, right? They march around the, the city seven times, seven times. Lord, I don't know how this is going to work. Aiken, Aiken, I'm praying, I'm praying. Lord, I'm, I'm trusting you, I'm trusting you. Joshua's command. On the seventh day, you're going to go into Jericho. Walls are going to come tumbling down. Don't take any of the treasured possessions. In fact, what the treasured possessions belong to the Lord. Not for yourself. Dang, Aiken. What did you do? You saw the word, the Lord at work. 
The prized possessions were too much for him. The beautiful cloak, 200 shekels of silver, the gold bar. Achan, you were told. Read the word of God and pray. Achan, did you not know? We read on, we know what happened. It cost him everything. We know, church, right? We know. But in our doing, do we... We must remember that it cannot be in our own flesh. And I think that's why the next two points of, of Jude are, are so pivotal. As, as we ready ourselves, we, yes, we read the word of God. We, we pray in the spirit. But guess what? It seems the most simple of phrases, but it's, it is so important because without it, we cannot do the previous two. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Right? If we love God so much, right? what, what does the Lord require of us? This is Micah. What does the Lord require of us? Oh, man, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? When we love God so much that we want to walk humbly with him, when we want to obey him, to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh, we desire to do his commandments. That is the love of God, to obey him, to do his commandments. Because when the ungodly and when the false teachers, they come and they will entice us, with the cloaks of this world, with, with the shekels of this world, with, with the treasures of this world. We say, no, because I love the Lord so much as those are but rubbish to me. They are but rubbish to me. And then lastly, in this, what do we also do? What, what does the faithful Christian does? He awaits Christ, verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. The NSB says, waiting anxiously. We're waiting. Because as 1 John 3, 3 puts it, where we, we fix our hope on the hope that is to come. And why is that so important? Because when we fix our hope on Christ, and, and the best of his kingdom is, is coming, right? The other things do not matter. And, and in these last times, as, as persecutions will, will increase, we, we've been reading through that through First Peter, difficulties will increase. We must remember to fix our eyes on Christ, wait for him anxiously of his coming. So those are four. We ready ourselves by building up in his word, praying, loving God, and awaiting a Savior. Well, what's the third call? We rescue the lost. We rescue the lost. Remember the warnings. We ready ourselves. We rescue the lost. You know, verse 22, I love how it starts. And, and have mercy on those who doubt. I think it goes without saying, right? In the last times, the amount of doubters will increase twofold. Doubter after doubter, they're going to be all over the place. And however this world paints it, as, as the time draws near, whether they paint it as a, a new normal or, or what other crafty way they try to convince you not to worry about what's going on around you, there's going to be so many that doubt and know nothing of Christ. Well, see, this is the church's third and great, greatest responsibility while we're here, right? We 
rescue the lost. But in doing that, what does it say here in 22? We must be merciful in our approach. Merciful. It must begin there. Because rescuing the lost, if it starts with hate and anger, it's not going to be according to the will of God. And trust me, I get it. I live where you live. I see the things that are going on in our city and in our big cities. I don't want to take my kids downtown anymore to eat, right? I, I feel uncomfortable about the, the things that I see being openly flaunted out in the public. And I know what that does. Sometimes it leads to an anger, right? Sometimes it is righteous. But sometimes it's just anger. But we must remember that these many doubters who wander the streets, even of our city, without Christ, they are separated for him forever to outer darkness where the worm does not die, where the fire is not quenched. Eternal torment. I think that's why Christ in Matthew 9, 36 this is what it says of him as he looked out onto the crowds. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You see so many doubters lost without a shepherd. Church, be merciful. We know that without Christ, complete separation from him. Let us be merciful as we evangelize the lost. Verse 23 also says this. We can't sit idly by. You can't just say, okay, well, the time is coming. The last times are upon us. There's a sense of urgency. Verse 23, save others by snatching them out of the fire. This is a, a quick Desperate, uh, forceful movement. Uh, uh, snatching others out of the fire. This is, I cannot wait and stand idly by while you go to the depths of hell. There is a sense of urgency with this evangelism. And I'll also have to say that along with the doubters, right, there will be many who want nothing to do with the word of God. They will deny it. They don't want to hear of it. We must snatch them from the fire, but also be reminded. Remember, Jude really focuses on false teachers, on the apostate. There will be many in which we, we make this effort, and again, not on our own strength, but what the Lord gives us. As we try to rescue them from the fire, we're going to have lots of people claiming that they know Christ. I think those uh, who have gone downtown... Uh, and have gone witnessing or maybe other places, it's not uncommon for someone to come up and, and to me. That, that they may have just come from the club or they may be going to a bar or to the club and they'll tell me that they're a Christian. Now, now, granted, that might be the case. Maybe they're in a moment of weakness. Maybe they are stumbling. But on some of those nights, five or six people. Why is that? I think so many people are misguided. And because of the, the inaccuracy of, of understanding the gospel, because of false teachers, because of the scales that they put over their eyes, they can't see. And they think all is well. They can live according to the flesh and, and really just deny God, but they think they're well. 
So we have to realize, too, that, that those that we snatch from the, the fire are going to profess faith in Christ. So what do we need to know? I think this goes back to our second point of, of readying ourselves. How is the church built up? By understanding rightly the word of God. So think of the full armor of God, right? What is that thing? The, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That is why you and I, as we go to rescue the lost, we must know the word of God. Because there's so many things out there that sound like the word of God and sound like a gospel, but it is no gospel, as Paul would put it. There is no other gospel. There is one. And we have to equip ourselves to know ourselves, to ready ourselves as we share the gospel, the word of God, for both the doubter, to the apostate, and to those who are under the influence of the false teacher. And finally, it says here in Jude that as we approach, yes, we must approach with mercy. But it also says this, to others show mercy with, with fear. With fear. What does that mean? Right? We have to be cautious. Right? Satan can masquerade in such a loveliness sometimes, right? Angel of light. We know that half-truths are no truth at all, but sometimes the deception of not to become polluted ourselves, to not fall for the half-truths, the things that sound like the gospel, it can really lower our defenses. Jude warns us, we go with mercy, but we go with fear. We must be cautious in our approach. All right, that is why 2 John 1.10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. We have to approach with mercy but fear of not the damage of becoming polluted ourselves. Remember that the apostate, their God is their belly, their glory is their shame, their end is destruction. Guess what? They love converts too. They would love to have you come into their camp. So we have to be careful. We have to move with fear. We have to move with, with caution. And he uses this really graphic language. Garment stained. Stained by the flesh. Well, Scripture only puts it two ways. Right, we are either... Living in rightful obedience to the word of God and following that. And the garments he gives us are lovely. They're white. They're pure. But anything outside of that is, is not a, just kind of an off-white. No, it's, it's polluted. To give you more, if you look at the, this text and examine it, it's talking about their undergarments being polluted by their bodily function. People who have followed the way of Balaam, who have committed the error of Cain, as it, it says in June, are, are walking around in their own filth. And we have to be careful not to become polluted ourselves. That's why, merciful and with fear. As I close, I want to really end with where this book begins. You know, who's the author? Jude. I think Jude often gets overlooked. 
You know, and uh, as this book starts out, this beautiful leather uh, letter. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and all delivered to the saints. It almost seems like Jude was about to take another direction. But he felt that he needed to write this general letter to the saints in order to tell them to give them the charge of contend for the faith. Because what did he see? They were in the last times. False teachers everywhere. The ungodly everywhere. Be ready, he says. Be ready, he says. Contend for the faith. Was Jude always this way? Well, if you know who Jude was, this author is a half-brother of Jesus. You know what? In John chapter 7, it says that Jesus' brothers denied him. There was a time where Jude didn't see his half-brother as a savior. He denied him. He sat under the very teaching of the savior, lived in the same home with him. Day after day, he saw visibly the son of God. But he denied him. Well, I don't know what happened in Jude's life, but something came along, and, and we see it here in the opening. What does he now call him? Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. I'm not just his half-brother. I am his servant. He is my Savior. And he, once he came to, the Lord drew him to himself. He felt, I know, we see it here in this text, he had to contend for the faith. The, the, the Savior that I once denied so much. No, no, no. He is, he is my Savior. And I'm going to contend for the faith, this responsibility that I have. So church, when we see, you know, we must remember the warnings, we must ready ourselves, in, and we must rescue the lost. We must say, how do we, how do we get to that point? Well, we first must be like Jude, redeemed. Maybe some of us here, like Jude, sat, are sitting under the teaching, faithful teaching of his word, and we, we deny it. We deny it. We don't accept it. We have to first receive the glorious transformation of the gospel that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, such as you and I. Oh, the glorious message of salvation. When we do that first, right, then we can begin to, those three points, contend for the faith. You know, that book, I didn't tell you, at the onset where I read it from. Uh, it's right here. That account came from a man by the name of E.B. Slaughterdale. He became a pastor up in the Pacific Northwest later in his life. A Norwegian man. And you know what? As the city of San Francisco was burning to the ground, his brother from across the bay, the safe haven of Oakland, came over and he says, come with me. I want to take you and your family back with me to Oakland, where you can be safe. The pastor required, well, I want to stay. His brother said this, yes, but San Francisco will go down. This was the response of the pastor. All right. If that is to be the case, 
I'm ready to go with the others. He was ready, ready to die. He was ready to contend for the faith. Church, there's, even now, it seems like the last days are upon us. Church, be ready. We must be ready to contend for the faith that was once and all delivered to the saints. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. Lord, we, it's never by our own might. Lord, help us to love you, to remember the warnings of your scripture, your holy scripture. We build ourselves up. We ready ourselves and reach the lost, God. We thank you that you are merciful for your mercy and your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.